Welcome to Voices of the Community, an Indie Star podcast. I'm your host, Public Engagement Editor Oshia Boyd. And my guest on this episode is Jill English, Chief of Community Equity and Inclusion at Child Advocates. English directs the Interrupting Racism for Children Workshops program. The program is pretty special as Interrupting Racism for Children is a two-day interactive workshop that not only educates people on racism, but it actually asks them to do something to end it. I've participated in this workshop myself before, and participants are not only empowered to solve the issue of racism, but actually are given the tools to do so. English began working as a case manager in 1996 for the Office of Family and Children, which is now the Department of Child Services. She later became a therapeutic foster care manager and trainer for foster parents at the Villages of Indiana. In addition, she worked with Family Works, Inc., and conducted parenting assessments and supervised parental visits. She's been an organizer and advocate for social justice and racial equity for more than 30 years. She also trained court-appointed special advocates, or CASAs, for 17 years. She joined Child Advocates as a guardian ad litem in 2014 and transitioned to her current role in 2018. I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I think it's safe to say Jill English has a love for children and a passion for helping families. Jill, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you. So let's start with the work you do now. Interrupting Racism for Children. Can you share what this program is, how and why it started, and how can one participate in a workshop? Absolutely. So Interrupting Racism for Children is a two-day interactive workshop where we bring community together and or organizations host their own. And we give a framework for why we started this work at Child Advocates, which at the core is to make the community better Mm -hmm. through the catalyst of children. And it came about because of the disparities of brown and black children in our child welfare system. And we knew that the disparities around race were a reflection of community. Children don't create the child welfare system. And I say child welfare system for this particular instance, but every system mirrors this. So regardless of what, whether it's private, government, non-for-profit, this is just a mirror of who we are because this is a reflection. Uh, We can look at what we're doing to our children. Because there was a disparity of brown and black children overrepresented in Marion County in the child welfare system, our leadership, Cindy Booth and Greg Ellis, decided this is coming from adults. How do we educate and maybe see what we're not aware of, what we're not consciously aware of that is impacting children on this level. And so we started from that catalyst. How is it that we have sometimes twice the brown and black African-American population represented in the child welfare system in a given month? And how are we leaving white children in dangerous situations because of the underrepresentation? So that's why we started it in 2007, 2008. And it is two days of us coming together to discuss, to get to know one another, to have open, honest conversations with no blame or shame, but to move into an educational space for what racism is, why it exists, how we are oftentimes unconsciously contributing to the ongoing, I call it toxicity of racism. And we conclude with this is what we can do about it. 
Um, and we don't actually give the answer for an individual. We give tools so that mm-hmm. they can pull that out themselves. And then how can I get in if I want to do a workshop? How do I? Anyone just contact you? Yes. Okay. Anyone can uh, attend a workshop by just going to childadvocates.net. We host one for the community at least once a month. Most of the ones that we do are contracted by organizations. Uh, frequently when community come, then they want to host their own, bring, mm-hmm. bring in mm-hmm. their staff. Uh, it might be a religious organization. It might be a statewide. And we'll, you know, because we'll do virtuals. Uh, we learned during during COVID how we had, you know, we did virtuals. So through the website and any questions that someone wants to ask, they can simply shoot us an email through the portal and we make we make a lot of appointments to discuss with people how to host their own, but we do host one monthly to the community. You said a couple of things, and I want to kind of put a pin in them. This is coming from adults, um, and you don't have blame or shame. It's unconscious, and this many of this this is unconscious. But this is unconscious, so I kind of want to put a pin in that, so we can uh, have a later question that I'm okay. going to ask you that kind of will touch on some of that. Um, why is this work important to you and and how do you measure success for something you can't quantitatively measure this so then how do you know you're making a difference when we talk about the qualitative work that we do sometimes it's difficult to actually capture what is being done because that's a Mm follow-up but when we are capturing the stories from participants of what is act is being impacted it's amazing um some of the stories that vibrate with me in terms of how do we know we're making a difference, uh, the most impactful for me are youth because we work with youth as well. But um, I recall a few stories, one being there was a uh, a group of people that professionally work in healthcare, And after coming to our workshop, they actually changed the practice and policies in their uh, oh, wow. data collection because they were categorizing people racially by black, white and other as opposed to recognizing what happens to indigenous are very different than what happens to, you know, someone that is Korean. If we're looking at the science behind Mm -hmm. biology and, and, and identifying what is going on in different groups of people. Mm -hmm. So I know that's one of those like policy tangible things that occurred. We also know that um, stories of people engaging and interacting with other human beings where they didn't realize they weren't doing it before. Mm. Um, I had once a a wealthy, a very wealthy white gentleman, generationally wealthy, who talked about, I am that person who's been disconnected. He was an elder, who, which also gives hope. It's mm-hmm. never too late. And he said, I realized when I would go get my car fixed, I never spoke to black men. Mm. And now I have those conversations, whereas before I didn't see these human beings. Um, there, There's a gentleman that lives here. A lot of people don't realize that Dan Wakefield is the last living journalist that reported at the Emmett Till yes. trial. Yes. yes. He, when we first started doing this in the community, we partnered with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond doing Undoing Racism before Central Indiana Community Foundation went through the workshop. Yes. They are the ones that came to us and said, we want to make this more sustainable. We want to make this a part of our state, our community, people that live here that can talk about this in respect to Indianapolis, Indiana, throughout our community. So we partner with the People's Institute with the catalyst of what CICF afforded. um, And then we branched off. When we partner with them, before we partner with them, when they were coming into the community, Dan Wakefield went to that workshop. He's come back. We've created a relationship with him. And he. there's actually a documentary about his life being done 
including mm-hmm. what his relationship was with James Baldwin, mm-hmm. consistently talking to him about you just don't get it. And even with all the civil rights work he did, and he did some great work and he's written some great books, he says, I didn't get it until I came to this workshop. Wow. And I engaged for the first time with a racially diverse group of people that were having authentic conversations about racism and the impact that it has on folks' lives. So wow. it's it's rich when you realize those are the everyday actions that, you know, then when we do our gatekeeping, if I'm not engaging with people because of their race, I'm not offering them resources. I'm not telling them about opportunities. I've already determined who's going to get the scholarship applications, who's going to get the job opportunities. So those things are qualitative, but they really impact lives. And the youth that come to the workshop are next level. Because youth, because we work with teenagers, mm-hmm. um, when they come to the workshops, they're telling us, oh, as soon as you give them information, they're like, oh, why aren't we learning this? Why aren't we mm-hmm. being taught this? Mm-hmm. So we have youth that have come through the workshops that have been empowered um, with an understanding of their voice and it validates their experiences. We are, you know, we know mental health is huge right now. Mm-hmm. And consistently those youth tell us that we are creating safe spaces because they didn't know that they weren't the only ones being impacted by racism. The messages that they've received. We have youth that are now um, speaking to their administration about diversity is not enough. We want inclusion and equity, not just diverse curriculum. Uh, we have them going to their school boards and discussing because they've been empowered, because they have shared understanding, because they have language now and validation that this is going on and I'm just not imagining this. We have young people that are saying things like, yeah, why is it that I make better grades than my uh, peers, but I'm not in the advanced classes? And so we're giving voice Mm -hmm. and understanding. So there is a lot of things qualitatively going on and when you capture those stories it's like wow you know you're planting seeds and sometimes you don't feel mm-hmm. feel that until mm-hmm. you had those follow-up mm-hmm. conversations but there so we're in a so th- this now you made me think of another question <laughs> <laughs> so i'm going to kind of go to this question and then and then ask this ask the other one at the same time so we're in a different time right now um and so a lot of the work you're doing in this space to end racism we're seeing pushback to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Everything's being labeled CRT, using work woke as a pejorative, uh, co-opting that to mean nothing that it ever meant in the beginning. Um, and then, and and now we're kind of also talking about uh, race neutral. We're going back to this idea of why do we have to see color? Why are you always talking about race? Why are you always talking about race? Um, and so that was, I, when you were talking, I thought about the race neutral aspect of it. It's very clear there are some who don't want to in, interrupt racism. How has this affected your work in, now that we're in this space? Because there are people, and there was a time, it was very, especially 2020, 2021. Now you start seeing this, oh, we don't want to, we don't want this. You're you're putting race in my face, even though it's been central to other people's lives <laughs> all the time. But for those who didn't have to think about race, now it's a problem. Yeah, that's that's loaded. So uh, we know politically that uh, CRT is used as fear mongering. And, you know, the person nationwide who started that even uh, says I did that intentionally for political reasons. Um, and when you talk to people that understand that critical race theory is a high, high. Most people don't even know what CRT is. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> who are anti CRT have no clue. They don't know. It's like critical race theory is 
are courses that you take in law school. Um, and so to umbrella any conversations under that also speaks to when there's a lack of education, why we don't say, give me education. Don't In a free society, how are we proponents of less education, less knowledge? That mm. That is mind-boggling. Um, and I like that. That's it, a good question. It's mind-boggling, and that's one reason why I think uh, we bridge this gap with uh, the elders and the youth because youth say that, like, g- give me the information. And I say it all the time, too. I'm like, I can give you the information or, you know, it's like, tell me who to vote for. I can tell you what their platforms are and what they've done. You choose what to do with mm-hmm. that information. Mm-hmm. Stop telling me to tell you who to vote for because that's essentially the conversations people are having. Tell me what to do. Tell mm-hmm. me what to do. You mm-hmm. And we and part of the workshops are getting into you have the intellect and you have influence in your sphere. Uh, we've been, we've just been made to minimize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we can do so much with that. In terms of the pushback, um, we, we have seen the wave. So Child Advocates was doing this before yes. it was illuminated during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, Black Lives Matter with the catalyst of George Floyd losing his life. And we know he wasn't the first. We just, during COVID, that perfect storm of we had to sit still mm-hmm. and we all had mm-hmm. to pay attention. So we've been doing this. And it has been an uprise of people pushing back. Um, and it's very uh, unique to watch different school districts, different school systems. Some are in favor. Some want to oppose. Um, some of the legislation that's been proposed in mm-hmm. terms of let's stop teaching children. Mm-hmm. Let's not let them know this. And uh, I think we just we just have to be consistent and uh, diligent because what it shows us is that we're doing something right. Because, you know, if we weren't doing something right, nobody would pay attention. So we have been uh, misrepresented on uh, social media oh, by, really? uh, and blogs and uh, people who've never attended the workshops. I've been asked um, by some school districts at different times, would you be willing to meet this person and say no? I, that, you know, someone who does not have the emotional intelligence to come to a space and place and actually authentically speak about it. I don't that that's another agenda. This isn't about learning. This isn't about growing. This isn't about coming together uh, cross racially for a more humane society. This is you have an agenda because you've never been in that space. Mm-hmm. So I'm just very strategic about how we do things because we we want to get out of our own way and make this a better community uh, for children. You know, that's that's the whole goal. Well, and it's, it's interesting to me that. Um, Schools will be anti this. The place where, where there's actually children and who who actually can make the world a better place. We actually are saying, no, we don't want you to learn anything else. And we're calling it indoctrination now. Uh, when actually, no, what you're doing is the indoctrination. Like you said, some people come with an agenda not to learn, but to just be there to be anti and to bring that bad energy <laughs> into that space where everyone's trying to be better people. It's very interesting how that is how that's come to play now. Absolutely. It's if we want critical thinkers, it we need to be but Do we really want critical thinkers? Well and and that's a whole <laughs> we agenda. Say that, but I don't know that we really do. We, it's a whole agenda. Like I if you want to be critical thinkers in terms of moving into the future, you cannot move forward with backward thinking. 
you just can't do it. And I'm not necessarily, you know, one to tout Henry Ford, but I, you know, there's a quote that I paraphrase that is like Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they needed, they would have said a better horse because mm-hmm. they didn't know a mm-hmm. vehicle was possible. Mm-hmm. And so what is possible, we can't do with backwards thinking. Yes. And that is one thing I think um, what 2020 has shown me um, and since is that we can create. And when you look at historically what America is and has been, we can create whatever the heck we want to create. There's no limits other than what we think. And and I think that's where um, like you said the backward thinking. There's nothing wrong with knowing history and understanding history and, and looking back and saying, okay, here's where mistakes were made. But there's something wrong with thinking, I just want to stay here. I don't want to go forward and move in a better direction because they're and we've got so creative with COVID that we can take their creativity extended elsewhere we can create everything we want if we want a better society we can create if we want to create um when people were you know saying um we want to create this society where we don't have injustices and one of the things that I I wrote a column and people getting pushback of course but when people were saying defund the police there wasn't necessarily from my perspective. Everybody was not necessarily saying we don't want police. Some people were saying we want them to, we want to do things better. Defund the police became kind of the, the calling card mm-hmm. and the word that was used. But what they were really saying was we can do different. We can think outside the box. We can create something where police deal with public safety matters. And then they don't have to deal with the mental health issues and mental all these other things we're asking them to do is outside of their parameters so that's just one example that came to mind quickly of like how we can we can create a new thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it'd be a good thing but people don't want to think differently and so that always boggles my mind like you said we can (laughs) we can put put people in outer space but we can't you know it it, can't is not the reality we can do it's just we don't want to. We, People don't want to. And how we look at things and how we're made to believe things are too big. Mm. Um, you know, even when we talk about advocacy, when, when we're in spaces and we're we're talking about we don't know our, the power that we have, the influence that we have. And I actually say sometimes, you know, we don't have to have the Martin Luther King model because that's what a lot of people think. Like if okay. I'm not doing something to that level. I'm not doing anything as opposed to what you do in your space is enough. Raise your kids. Yeah, it's is enough. <laughs> it like starts at home literally. Yeah, and and being intentional because, you know, we do uh speaking engagements and one that uh I do with one of my colleagues are are your good intentions enough? Mm. Because your good intentions with racial bias that you don't understand all of us will lead to more racism. Because how do I how do I ensure that I am with integrity being inclusive in who I interview? How am I not giving myself the scapegoat of well people diverse people didn't apply? Well where did you go? What what opportunities are you creating? And if there aren't people in that arena then what are you doing to create that pipeline? Mm-hmm. So we have to be intentional. We have to realize it's more than um, calling someone you know, a racist or all those things, you know, we say if you shipped every person on the planet that is considered a a skinhead, a Nazi, KKK, would we still have racism? 
And and yes. so that begs us to say, well, then what am I doing? What can I do different? And when we talk about this neutral color, um, I, I say all the time, I'm like, we, we, we teach two and three-year-olds that race is bad. Because children in their innocence will say descriptors. And yes, yes. They'll just say descriptors. Because that's just what they see. And, it's and, nothing and wrong what's with wrong that. with that? You know, what's wrong with saying a blue shirt, red shoes, you know, yellow hair, brown eyes. Yes. And when we shush them, you know, my, my brown friend or my tan friend or when they're in public and they say things. Yes. And we shush them. We're teaching them. We're slowly teaching them there's something wrong. And there's nothing wrong with descriptors around race except that we want to say that they're neutral. And and I tell people that's as ridiculous as saying don't talk about the color of flowers because there's beauty in all flowers and we see that. So why are we telling sh- people to shush when we talk about the color of someone's skin, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is funny that you mentioned it because my sons call people by the color of their hair. Yeah. <laughs> Children are just trying to figure it out and they, they're they picking these messages up from, from us and then they play them out. Like, why are you telling, you know, like if you're in a grocery store and it's like, oh, the, the, that black man over there and we say, shh. Mm-hmm. And the parent usually gets real embarrassed. Yeah, he is black. And there's nothing wrong with that except for we know we've got a racialized society. And so we're saying something bad because we're not supposed to talk about the fact that underneath all that is a racial hierarchy. Mm. And people are treated different because of the color of their skin. Mm. Or else why would there be any difference between saying a red flower and a yellow flower? Same with human beings. There's beauty. Because it's loaded, though, when we talk it's about loaded. it. It's loaded. It's loaded. And wow. they start to pick that up. I mean, there's, all of this is created in nature, right? Yeah. All of this. The color of flowers. The color of the sky. You know, the sky, and then we tell, you know, no, color that blue. The sky is multiple colors at different times. and we So we get this idea that this is right and this is wrong. Mm. I never thought about that. That's deep. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> like, the sky is not always blue. And I never thought about the sky not being blue when I... When I Think of the sky. Think of it. Yeah. Blue, but you are so right. You see the red, the orange. Yeah. And you it's all beautiful. Yes, it, it it's is. It's all beautiful. Yes, it is. You began working with abused and neglected children in the 1990s. This is a group of children often forgotten about by society. So first explain why advocates are so vital for these children. And second, what can we do better as, as a society to care for these children? So, uh, abused and neglected children are arguably some of our most vulnerable citizens, and uh, they don't always get the due representation. So, like in the state of Indiana, children that are involved in the child welfare system are 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 not entitled to uh, immediate legal representation. They can request it. Indiana is one of the few states that doesn't give all children legal counsels. They get guardian ad litems, which are very important, or they have a CASA, okay. a court-appointed so special advocate. So they get av- someone to advocate. Because I was going to say, how can a six-month-old request? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and a lot of times, um, you, you know, some states' attorneys are given. In our state, they can be requested, which is re- really important. Um, you have a guardian ad litem alongside an attorney. You really have a child's best interest okay. um, being looked at from um, a point of view that also includes l- the legals, the legality, what they're entitled to as human beings. Uh, it's very important for children to have a voice. And, you know, you have sibling groups where sibling groups will have different um, 
paternal lineage or maternal lineage. And and what we see is that guardian ad litems can give fact-based information sometimes that the state can't um, just from gathering things. And it can be something as simple as but as complex as somebody didn't ask one paternal grandmother and that paternal grandmother says she would take all four children. Mm. Um, and so guardian ad litems and CASAs are very important in the lives of speaking on behalf of what's in the best interest of children and seeing through some of that, uh, the murkiness, because a pair of glasses makes a big difference if everybody's got these bigger things going on, but this child isn't acting up because of that. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't, CASAs really fill, fill that gap. What, so... As I'm thinking, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about things, what can we do better to help care for these children? You said they're the most vulnerable. But so many times I find that, um, like you said earlier, I said put a pen in. This is coming from adults. Things are coming from adults. So many times children pay the cost. Absolutely. Of their parents' bad decisions and bad behavior. And we as a society are, are okay with letting them pay, even though we say, we care for kids. We love children. We want to that that doesn't actually show up in so many of the ways how that when we treat how we treat children um because we have so many children who are in the system needing you know when the I hate to go back to the abortion debate um but when there was this always oh put them up for adoption do you know how many kids are already in the system waiting for adoption? Do you know how many kids are in the foster care system waiting for and being shuffled around? There's not easy answers to these things. So um, how then do we do better when we say we care for kids and we, we, we want every baby born, but then when they're born, they have such horrible lives. Um, but then no one seems to care. And it's all, well, the parents, you know, it's the parents' fault. We don't want to give them. We don't want to give their parents welfare because all they're going to do is get high off of it. We don't want to give them any more money. We don't want to give them free lunch. We don't want to do these things that will actually help the kid because we want to punish the parent. What can right. we do better? Well, I know uh, that's deep. It is. It, it, <laughs> it's deep and it's simple at the same time and it's complex. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of the things we talk about in the workshop. We spend so much time debating with the but, the but, or, and we say it's and because human beings are complex. So. Um, there's multiple, you know, solutions. It's and, it's and mm-hmm. this, it's and mm-hmm. that. So um, when we think about children like child advocates and the advocacy we do, like, so one of the programs we do is Children's Mental Health Program, which is statewide. So when you call that 211 number, uh, we're a portal um, and we administer assistance to all 92 counties when parents with an upstream approach. So some of what we can do is an upstream approach to preventative measures. What's upstream? Mean? Um, meaning before somebody throws the child in and we got to okay. pull them out of the river. When you, you know, it to me, it it mirrors like when you were saying the, the slogan became defund the police. And for a lot of people uh, like myself, that wasn't what, it, for me, it was just saying, let's reallocate some of the resources mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. so we can do some prevention work so we don't have so much uh, to pick up at the end. So, you said that much better than I did. No, no, no. I mean, that's, and that's what a lot of people really meant. Let's that's allocate they, yeah. some of the resources so we can prevent some of these things from happening and see what's the catalyst for them um, and invest in that. So when when I think about our children's mental health program, it helps families to have some of those preventative resources mm-hmm. when you have children that have mental health needs mm-hmm. and we can possibly assist them with getting those diagnoses so the family's needs are met. Um, 
what are they eligible for? What are the barriers so that we can prevent families Mm -hmm. by getting them what they need? We also have uh, several legal departments that help. um, The Children's Mental Health Program helps any family in the state of Indiana that's trying to seek legal services through that 211 number to see if we're able to, if according to state qualifications, uh, around mental health needs and diagnosis. We have legal departments that work with children that are in the child welfare system um, to help with those specialized uh, needs like immigration, uh, mediations to help unclog the courts. So there's a lot of programs that are going on where we talk about what can we do. I think of uh, Indiana Youth Institute, IYI. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when people really want to get weed through the murk, and you have such a resources like IYI, so you can see how children are doing. That is, that tells you a lot, and it helps you to really, if you say, I want I want the community to be better for children, you can look at data through IYI. Yes, that data is... Uh... It's amazing. And it's, it's amazing, and you can break it down to your county. You can break it down by, um, you know, do I want to see what's going on with child welfare? Do I want to see what's going on with education? Do I want to break it down by this? And then you align your voting with that. You know, if somebody is saying that they want their community to be better and that children need this, or if someone is falsely saying something, you have a resource tool. You know, when I, um, our poverty for the state of Indiana, children, uh, the number of children experiencing poverty in this state was reduced because of the subsidies mm-hmm. of COVID. Mm-hmm. And that IYI data showed that the majority of those funds were being spent responsibly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which without looking at that data, we might have heard different from someone advocating for something else. I'm not saying whether or not the subsidies should have stopped or not. I'm saying don't lie about what they were being utilized mm-hmm. for. Families actually were, were pulled up out of poverty and they spent it on housing and food responsibly. Mm -hmm. And so when you have information to see what makes your community better, children are a good litmus test of how we're doing. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Wow. Um, You've trained, and you've mentioned these both these terms, CASAs, court-appointed special advocates, and you were a guardian ad litem. I'm going to venture to say a lot of people may not know what those, um, never heard of these. So can you explain what those roles are, what they are, and how can someone get involved to be in one of those roles? So guardian ad litems are paid positions that are advocates for children involved with the child welfare system. So once they've been adjudicated a child that is in need of services because of abuse and or neglect, CASAs are court-appointed special advocates that are community volunteers. Okay. So depending on where you're at in the world of the United States, depending on which county you live in, you might have a CASA program that has two or three employees and they have all volunteers and and they are training them and they're monitoring them. Um, Indianapolis, Marion County has a guardian ad litem program with CASAs that work under those guardian ad litems and are supervised by them. So Marion County is one of the few counties um, in uh, the state and the nation that doesn't have wait lists. 
Because, because we, we have both. Because we have both. The CASAs work up under the guardian ad litems. Uh, child advocates no longer host that program, mm-hmm. but we do a lot of legal work alongside to assist with continuing to advocate by direct representation, by doing mediations of termination of parental rights to assist with children not lingering in the system. And similar to divorces where you sit people down, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's a foster parent that's had the children, maybe it's a relative and the courts have gotten to a point where this child needs permanency and home isn't where they're going. And so we will assist with mediating to see if we can expedite that process as well, in, in addition to the other legal services that we provide a child advocates. So uh, advocating for, for children in those multiple ways, um, resources like IYI and really, you know, for me, it, the again, if if. We measure our community by how our children are doing, and we have access to data that shows how they're doing, whether it's education, mental health, physical health, um, you know, youth employment, juvenile justice. If we have resources to look and see how we're doing and how we're not doing and where we can improve and where some of our resources are being spent, that's not the only thing. But it is a big catalyst to see how we treating our babies. You, you, you see, I type that because, like... That is a good litmus test to let, as a journalist, to to look through the lens of, for story ideas and look through the lens of holding ourselves holding ourselves accountable is how are our children doing, and if our children aren't doing well, that says a lot. Says a whole lot. <laughs> that says a lot. Um, and I don't. And I've never thought of it in that way of to look and see. To, to measure everything by how our children are doing, if our, yeah. how they're doing. We, we have these pockets of understanding, and we and we look at these group of kids, or, oh, these are the good kids, these are the bad kids, here's... But overall, 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 it matters. The good kids, the bad kids, the middle-of-the-road kids, they all matter, they all work together, because to use the, the, the cliche, they are a future. I mean, that's really... And we do things for children oftentimes without the inclusion of Without talking to one child. Without talking to <laughs> one. When we do workshops with youth, they are so powerful. We do youth workshops and then we have a set of youth that want to continue on this journey of building cross-racial relationships and giving them opportunities to end racism, to interrupt it through multiple things. We do a lot. Um like last fall, we took a group of our Yara Youth Against Racial Injustice. They self-named, self-titled who they wanted to be known as. We took them to the Children's Museum when they had the Emmett Till exhibit. And then we provided them with an opportunity to hear Mr. Dan Wakefield speak. Um, it was life-changing to be able to hear that history live. Some of those babies that are in high school did not know who Emmett Till was. That's the impact of when we stopped teaching history, which is the same like to say that you live today and you understand what George Floyd is. And in 50 years, you know, it's like today, like children not knowing what happened on 9-11. Why are we not teaching history and why are we wanting to bury things? Yeah, we we say never forget 9-11. That's a slogan, never forget. Never forget. But we say don't teach this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, all of this is shaping who we are as human beings how we treat one another. When we talk to those youth, they immediately say, no one listens, no one asks us, no one's ever given us space to even discuss these things. Wow. And when you talk to youth, 
I'm just often amazed of just how insightful and not in because I'm not amazed at the intelligence. I'm amazed just how insightful that children can be about things that you think are adult things, uh, adult themes. And we, we, we see that at the state house. We see that at school boards where everyone's talking about what children should be exposed to and shouldn't be exposed to without actually asking children, what are you exposed to? Yeah. Because there are so many children who are exposed to so much that maybe they shouldn't be. Yeah. But there are some children out here who are living very adult lives based on their circumstance and through no fault of their own. And they're never being talked to. It's when you, when you work with children who've been involved with the child welfare system, it's an interesting conversation um, because it's not a, for me, it's, I want to hear your opinion. So I hear where you coming from. I want you to hear where I'm coming from. And oftentimes when people say, well, that's, that's not that job or that's not that person's job. And I say, well, you know, everybody, uh, doesn't have a parent per se. The state actually legally is the parent is the parent. So what about these children? And again, when we think about those who are going through these very unique situations, like children that are being impacted in the child welfare system and the undertone of racism, it just gives you a different way of, cause when you, when you can be inclusive of them, it gives you a bigger uh, lens of how you can capture everyone's needs yeah. in a different way. When I worked with ch children in the child welfare system and the advocacy that had to happen, children were and families being treated completely different with similar cases, similar situations in schools, similar situations when I would go to the medical clinics. Like you see this stuff happening. People don't know that they're doing it, but the children are absorbing. They know they're being treated different. The parents weren't verbal because they walk into a room and how they were being treated. I would literally have the same situations and watch families being treated completely different. Uh, before I left the courtroom, I had a 17 year old um, black child with a very similar case to a five year old white child with medical. It was medical, very similar. And there were, the mother of the 17 year old was being asked to jump through hoops. Her child was months away from being 18. And then I had the five-year-old white child, completely different. So you see how people in systems treat people different because of race. And oftentimes they don't know they're doing it. So how do we have these comfortable conversations? And I say comfortable because once we start to break down some of the, the we shouldn't talk about this. Well, let's talk about it because it's impacting lives. Let's get comfortable being uncomfortable. Let's, yeah. <laughs> and we have to, we have mm -hmm. to build in our workshops trusting spaces mm -hmm. so that when we're in this space, this is what we're going to do. And it's mm -hmm. no blame and it's no shame. And, and aren't these these human beings worth us trying to do better? Aren't they, aren't they worth just a few hours of emotional intelligence being stretched so we can learn from one another? We don't all have to agree, but let's just learn. As the, as the youth say, if I had spaces like this to understand you more, we would get along better and we could come up with different solutions. Hmm. Wow. That's... That's amazing. From the mouths of babies. That's what they say. That's what they say. <laughs> they, che they check us. And, I, and I'll say this, too. I think that we don't always want them in the conversation because then we got to be accountable. Ooh. We have to be you accountable. You may have said a word right there. <laughs> yeah, they will hold you accountable they wanna, they, because they will say, you said. We had a workshop once and there was a, a, a young lady in there and the adults, because like you said, they're so brilliant and so insightful. They're engaged in the conversation. 
um, on a level which I think, again, we don't expect them to. They mm -hmm. see us. They they are us. They're reflecting us. And one of them said, well, it's obvious the youth are going to change things because these, these youth are brilliant. These kids are doing it. And one of the youth leaned up and she said, if you all know it's a problem, why are you leaving it for us? Ooh. And I bet you everyone just kind of got silent. <laughs> and she, it was a very respectful response. It wasn't, you know, they, they say common sense things. So when you bridge the conversation, when you give education, it's going to come back. It's, what, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> and maybe that's the fear. Maybe that's yep. part of the fear of all this pushback is because we don't want the, the we don't want we to gotta, be held accountable. Got to be held accountable once you once you have the information, once you open maybe the Maybe that's part of the fear. Hmm, maybe that's driving it. I love it because I want to be better. Yeah, you've opened up a whole, made me think a whole nother way now. Another way, I got to type that. <laughs> so my last question for you is a question I ask pretty much everyone. Is there anything else you want to share? Anything else you want people to know about interrupting racism for children or child advocates or just caring for children in general? I would say interrupting racism for children as a part of child advocates is just in alignment with what we have always been, which are community advocates for children. And it might be uncomfortable. I, I know it's uncomfortable for some people to talk about child abuse. Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why child abuse is allowed to thrive. Mm. And for me, the parallel between me being comfortable allowing a child to be hurt is the same thing with racism. Mm. It's, it's two different beasts, but they're very similar. I've worked with families that it's uncomfortable to have to face that one individual who does those things who's neglectful, who's abusive, because it's, it's, they're part of your family, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, if it's a stranger, it's one thing, but it's, they're part of your family, and oftentimes it can be family members. And and I watch people protect things that hurt children, people that hurt and not children. not protect the child. And, so, and I see racism that way, too. It might be an uncomfortable conversation, but we have to have it. We have to do better. We have to create the communities and societies. Children equal family, family equal community. So we do this from the catalyst of children. Child Advocates continues to be, you know, one of the leaders in our state that has had this conversation for over a decade. Wow. And so we'll continue doing it because we know the data shows and we know the reality of working with children and families that racism is the ism um, that holds together where we talk about other people that are being pushed to the margins, racism holds it all together. And so child advocates, we continue to advocate so that we can break down those barriers. And you can find information out about us on our website. You can contact What's us. What's the website? Childadvocates.net. You can contact us that way. Uh, you can see about our other programs, and we will just continue. I say, you know, continue to be unapologetically advocates for youth, even if... Um, if we got to take a few hits, we're going we're gonna to stand in the way of them taking them. Well, Jill, thank you so much for being my guest today. I've learned so much, and hopefully my audience has too. Thank you. I appreciate you.